Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. The time is 3.05, and I'm Amina Ziyard, your host for this afternoon's show. Before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of, acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respect to the elders past and present. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we talk politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at the anti-Islamophobia protest in Bendigo, continue our discussion on the Parramatta shooting, as well as exploring the intersection of people of color experiencing mental illness and a feature on multiraciality. Don't forget to get involved in all of our discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at The Race Card. My co-hosts this weekend show are... Ahmed Yusuf. Oh, sorry, my mic wasn't on properly. That's my mistake. Ahmed Yusuf. And? Oh. Poppy Pro. For the new season, we've gotten a special guest. You might remember the protests earlier in the year against the forced closures of Indigenous communities in Western Australia. Well, one of the organizers from the Indigenous group Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Muriki Onis, joins us in studio. Hello. How are you? Milk red dad, Thunder! So we've got some questions, Meriki. Cool. Shall I hadn't heard that um, footage before. <laughs> so it took me back a bit. That's <laughs> all right. Yeah, on the race card, we find things that you have <laughs> even, even like, forgotten about. I even swore on there. <laughs> Do you want to start off, um, Ahmed? Yeah. I, like One of the questions uh, I've spoken to you before off air about it was, how have you found organizing and leading protests um, like you've done, uh, I guess, the past couple of months? Um, it's been 
<laughs> quite a a strange experience for me. Um, it's not something, you know, we'd ever planned to ever just get that big and, you know, just th- there were a few things that led up to um, those protests. And also, you know, I don't, I don't think we can credit completely, you know, the stuff that Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance did. You know, there was a melting pot of, um, of things that actually contributed to the why those protests got so big but I mean you know young people young Aboriginal people today um, I've seen you know more now and more of late uh, standing up and and fighting for you know our basic human rights. Why do you think uh, I guess this sudden upturn of of uh, I guess defiance has started what do you think that is? Um, So uh, it's hard to say I guess I think you know I I mean it's a long story about uh, uh, there are many things that contribute to you know the recent uprising, uh, particularly against the community um, closures, and and I think some of that might be you know we've always had terms dictated to us by governments, um, successive governments for two hundred and twenty seven years. I mean things were pretty good. I mean better I think politically um, back in the sixties, and then you know I think and the eight the 70s and the 80s but then I think the 90s through ATSIC the rise of ATSIC and then the fall of ATSIC there was you know a burst of Aboriginal middle class and that really um that uh that was that kind of created an idleness within the within the Aboriginal community um and so that 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 was a perceived um sense of freedom this rise of Aboriginal middle class and it was almost taboo to talk speak the words average uh, sorry sovereignty and and, and genocide and colonization and i think that you know through the 90s and the 2000s we are tired of that the youth are sick of you know that kind of perception and we kind of took it into our own hands and i mean with respect to spots of um sorry i should mention with respect to spots of um political movement you know particularly in brisbane and sydney and that the the um, 10 embassy movements have been going strong for a really long time but i you know i I can only imagine that i can only comment on you know the the recent rise of the youth um, particularly in melbourne um you know we're we're tired of the terms being dictated to us from government agendas and organizations i guess have you been surprised by the amount of people that have come and supported you at rallies uh, with the reaction Yes, absolutely. Um, when I the first rally that we called uh, our Melbourne group uh, was the Invasion Day march, and I, I said, I you know I don't want to, you know some people in our community call it Survival Day, um, and some people call it Invasion Day. We call it Invasion Day, and I didn't want to participate this year in the Survival Day stuff, and so I just posted a an event on Facebook. And I thought about 50 people would come and it turned out to be almost 5,000 people and we crashed the Australia Day Parade. And that was, you know, and I think about that right now and I still feel overwhelmed that that was the kind of reaction that happened. And I and I don't know how, I am very surprised and I don't know where that came from. Uh, one of the things that have interested me, I guess, is how some of your protests, as you said, like happened very spontaneously and you've kind of um, foregone those, I guess, um, some of the things that people usually do when they have rallies or protests, going through, I guess, um, the powers that be, if you will. And do you think, is, is that a part of your, I guess, politics of not listening to and not being dictated to by, by governments or officials? Yeah, so I guess, you know, 
we don't get permits to march or we don't notify police or other government agencies that we, you know, or the Melbourne City Council that we intend to, um, you know, stand on the streets and have a rally because it kind of contradicts our message around sovereignty um, and we want to move away from that control. So, yeah, we don't, we don't ask them um, for that permission and we won't do that either. Right. Uh, Miriki, I've got a question that's a little bit different. Um, my, the question that I'm thinking about is Aboriginality. Um, I understand, or not I understand, but I've heard other people talk about, um, I'm sorry to invoke blood politics, um, terms like half-caste, um, very insensitive uh, descriptions, if you can say. Um, however, we understand Aboriginality is actually quite different. It's not a matter of, you know, percentages. Uh, mm. Would you like to speak on that? Yeah, so... Um I guess that's. I can only. I guess I can only share um, my perspective as a Victorian from the Victorian Aboriginal perspective, um, and obviously, I mean, different um, nations and groups, Aboriginal groups from all around the country, have had different experiences. But um, certainly, you know, be, being. I think you know, a lot of people make the assumptions because I have light skin that um, you know I might be half or or I'm not really Aboriginal or. Um, you know, and those are really common um, questions that people ask me. And, and I've even had comments of people saying, you know, why don't you embrace your um, your European heritage? And and that's – I find that really odd, an odd conversation because in our community and growing up in our community, it's just not something that we talk about or it's not – and particularly the Melbourne community, you know, we have a lot of um, community members with light skin and it's the – you know who they are and, I mean – it's, it never occurred to me until I got older that um, I had, I mean, light, light skin and, and that it's different to having dark skin, but I'm the same. I'm a black fella. I'm black, just like everyone else in my community and, the, and, and my ancestors. So, um, and it is something that I think, you know, it's quite tough talking about as I get older because you get those questions and they're kind of, it's microaggressions on your identity. And if you think, and if you, you think if you talk about and consider the relationship with um, our relationship with um, hi- historically in the colonization of this country and the violence that we experienced and how that violence was centered around destroying our culture and our blackness um, if you think the the stolen generations are a perfect example for that they used to steal the lighter skinned children and put them in institutions and try and, and assimilate them to be white people um, and that didn't work you can't you know it's not about your skin colour. It's about your identity and who you are. It's a little bit deeper than your skin colour. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I understand it's a, very, it's a very sensitive area, and I was very like, concerned of asking that, but I think it's important to question because I have heard like people talk about it in a very derogatory, derogatory, derogatory way, and I felt like it was important to yeah, address it. Yeah, it, it, it is, and it's... You know, it is, it is quite derogatory. I mean, I, I mean, I, I wanted to talk about today too. Is use the example of what Anthony Mundine said to mm. Daniel Gill. I don't, can't, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name properly. When they were about to go, when they were having a boxing match, Daniel is an Aboriginal man from Tasmania. Anthony Mundine is an Aboriginal man from Sydney. And Anthony Mundine said, questioned his identity and said, "Aren't all the Aboriginal people in Tasmania dead?" Um, so, you know, that kind of anti-blackness that we experience in our own community is a very real issue and it's, you know, that that's confirming and that's playing into, you know, 
the grand plan of genocide for Aboriginal mm-hmm. people in saying those kinds of things. And that, you know, we're not without our struggles, and, and that's certainly a part of it. Well, we're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. I don't know, I don't date white guys, which is really weird, but like, it's just like, it's not necessarily a decision I made, it's just something that just sort of came and like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. So they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are they if you feel comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, a bit more comfortable. <laughs> what kind of thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first? Uh, I don't believe in religions, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religion is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, in Iranian, cannot. There are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And that was Akala with Absolute Power. Now we're moving into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's happened during the past week. Um, going to trigger warning this for potential mentions of suicide and mental health. The, this past week marked World Mental Health Week in hopes to raise community awareness about mental health issues and is held every October to coincide with World Mental Health Day held on the 10th of October. The aim is to promote social and emotional well-being of the community, encouraging people to maximize their health potential, enhancing and co enhancing the coping capacity of communities, families, individuals, and increasing mental health recovery. In light light of this, we were thinking about the intersection of mental illness for people of color. Myra Butt for Media Diversified writes in her piece, The Bastardization of Mental Illness, and I quote, We non-whites with any history of mental health issues find ourselves in the catch-22 of navigating racial injustices on a daily basis in symbiosis with the psychological trauma and harm it necessarily inflicts. Then we are treated as cartoons and parodies, having our experience reduced and simplified to our culture and race alone by the field of psychology. In other words, we are trapped within the color of our skin as well as the confines of our mind. I think we all can somewhat relate to this in varying capacities. Ahmed, do you have any experiences with approaching mental health services? What were your experiences like? 
um, I actually I, I not necessarily ever approached a mental health um, institution ever because I didn't think there was anything for me to to actually find in in that sphere. Um, and and since I've been I've been working with a um, a mental health organization called Afrocare, um, and it's a it's a mental health uh, organization on specifically for the, with the for the African community, um, and and like that like that quote says, I don't think there are many places where um, people of color and people of diverse backgrounds who who do not identify or or are white can find means of of approaching this even even things like um i guess racism for example um there have been studies and, and articles written about how being racially taunted can induce mental health issues and i know that that happened to me in high school and that's probably still happens to me to this day so so those kinds of things i don't think those conversations are necessarily had in any kind of depth in in any mental health institution at least in australia so again where do you go for for those kinds of discussions. Right, and I think it's very telling when you talk about you didn't even want to approach mental health services because you didn't think they would cater to you, right? And I think that speaks to, um, you know, translation services that are being cut, um, lack of cultural training for mental health uh, professionals. Poppy, did you want to add to that discussion? Sorry, excuse me, feeling a bit sick there. Um, Yeah, to add to that, I think um, there is a lack of sort of translation services, but also there are, um, you know, psychologists, social workers, people in that field who may not necessarily be trained to understand, you know, racial psyches and racial upbringings that don't fit the Western ideal. And, like, you know, if somebody has a problem within their family, within something that, like... Yeah, within a, a specific cultural upbringing, then you know, say a, an Australian like you know worker won't be able to s- sort of see that and may not sort of empathise to the same level as a person and be able to give them adequate help. Mm. Like, right. uh, like I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, and they were seeking help about their family situation, and they were like, the the mental health uh, professionals like move out of home, and they were like, I don't want to move out of home. I see the, the importance of my community. I like living near my family and I love my family, but it's this kind of, I guess it's this defaulting to to a specific culture and a specific mainstream, um, I guess, white culture that everything must be similar to that. So, for example, like for me, community and and family is a big thing. And even um, deciding to just like forego them and and be estranged from them... um, it's it's a massive step, and you're also um, taking um, a huge bit of yourself away from away from yourself. I don't know, Mariki, can you kind of? Yeah, I mean, we I, I've seen certainly that Aboriginal people certainly have the same experience in when entering um, mental health services. I, I mean, I've in my even in my work, we've had to engage psychologists, um, and they made rep- court reports. And they've actually said, um, you know, racist things within these reports that were handed into courts. So I mean, it's proven that, you know, that that you know, in the services that you access, and just because somebody has a degree in psychology, it doesn't mean that they understand the the racial complexities and 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 the power, you know, the the, the power imbalances within each cultures, which is something I think is a real issue. We have huge. Um, 
suicide rates within our youth. Um, obviously, mental health services aren't working for our community and something that it's, it's a real issue within our community. Because I know you work in, in a not necessarily mental health sector, but a sector that obviously deals with mental health and, and mental health issues. Could yeah. you, I guess, talk to us about that? Yeah, so I work in a family violence organisation, a family violence legal organisation. Um, and, you know, and it's, I mean, there are so many complexities around Aboriginal family, women experiencing family violence and the services they can access and the lack thereof services that they can access. Um, we've had, when I was a, um, a paralegal, I've had mental health services actually say, this person is too hard. We do not want to service them anymore. So, I mean, our the issues in the, and within our community, are, they actually can't handle the issues within our community. They're not equipped for them. They are equipped for um, a, a white middle-class demographic. And they often cost so much money that you can't, it's not it's not accessible for everybody, and particularly um, people from the Aboriginal community who don't have funds to access it. Um, I think that's also very important to consider that accessing these mental health, let alone being tailored to um, various groups of people who are marginalised, um, is definitely a very important thing to keep in mind. And for our listeners out there, Lifeline is one three one 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 four Beyond Blue. One three hundred two two four six three six suicide line one three hundred six five one two five one. We're going to head to a quick music break again. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on zero four two seven seven six seven seven six seven or tweet us at the race card. What does cultural preparation mean? Got no idea. What comes to mind? What was the question? Um, I don't actually know. <laughs> like, the no. Like, what, what comes to mind when you think of it? Preparing people for understanding cultures. Um, I'm not sure really. Maybe just like being ready to be accepting of other cultures and yeah. Like you respect people's culture or like that? Yeah, we're going there. Cultural, like bringing everybody together. What about you? Is that like multiculturalism? Okay, well that's what I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Cultural appropriation. Isn't that when things from particular cultures get taken by others? Or something along those lines? When you hear the term. Isn't it like when people, um, they ad- like adapt into another culture, like they take elements from another culture and they bring into their own or is it what about yeah? I just have no idea <laughs> cool I really don't know what do you think it means what do you think it means um treating each culture like as they should be treated just treating everyone the same I agree <laughs> Appropriation. I don't know. I don't know what that would mean. What comes to mind when you think of it? Something about culture. Well, <laughs> culture, but also probably something that's um that you've got some ownership to it. Everybody 
You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And that was Akala, who's the gangster. Following the recent Parramatta shooting, where a police officer was gunned down by 15-year-old Farhad Jabbar, the story has progressed, and there has been a number of media outlets discussing the incident. Guardian Australia reporter Michael Safi felt there's, a, there's been a lack of nuance. We spoke to Michael earlier in the week to get his thoughts on the issue and how he's been reporting the story. Michael, you've been reporting some stuff in The Guardian about Farhad uh, Jabbar and about his mental well-being in the days leading up to um, the shooting of the police officer. Uh, so, Can you tell me about what you found? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I, I was sort of... The thing that has been kind of bugging me the last few days is in the way that, that we're all covering, um, you know, this really important story. Um, you know, it kind of differs to the way we cover similar shootings. So, for example, if someone in the United States goes on a gun rampage, um, the, the, the killer, you know, we always are kind of given an insight into their state of mind. We hear from their friends and from family and people who knew them. And we come out with this kind of picture of how complex the problem of these sorts of mass shootings are. And I guess I kind of wondered why when it came to um, incidents that are branded terror, terrorist attacks like the shooting last Friday, um, the, the perpetrator is never kind of uh, drawn with the same nuance and we never get... Why do you think there is this lack of nuance, I guess, in, in the way this story is being covered? Look, I suppose um, it's because when um, it's a shooter, particularly when it's a kind of a white shooter, um, people feel that even though these people are criminals and have done terrible things, that they're still um, on some level relatable because they probably grew up in a context that's similar to the way in which the majority of people grew up, right? Like they had a kind of recognisable upbringing and um, lived in a culture that on some level we understand. And so we try to kind of look for the connection between, you know, where did these people go wrong? How did they stop being normal you know, like us or kind of, you know, ordinary like us and become these killers, right? And I think um, when it comes to Islamic extremists, um, we, we sort of we don't feel that same sense of, of being able to relate. And so their actions are far easier to kind of write off as being um, something that we don't understand and don't have to understand. And I think in that gap, a lot of ignorance can proliferate. And we begin to get these kind of strange ideas where people talk about, oh, it's something inherent in Islam, as if kind of every... Um, Muslim kid out there is just like talk, walking um, time bomb. Do you think- hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I think, I guess, um, people like Fahad, as you said, who've been going through hard times in terms of their mental, mental well-being, it, does that have anything to do with the government rhetoric of, I guess, um, spotted jihadi program that's in schools, that might have been in schools that Fahad had been going to, or the kind of overall kind of rhetoric that goes on when people talk about Muslim? I should start by saying I'm not an expert in radicalization, so I, I, you know, I, I can't speak with any insight. 
about what drives you know the people who do these things to do it. Um, look, undoubtedly, the rhetoric around terrorism, um, you know, does contribute to this feeling. I think of, of of some Muslim communities feeling besieged, and 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 that must also contribute to a sense of isolation felt by some by some young people. Um, however, you know, my sense is is probably that um, the reasons why um, Fahad Jabbar was feeling isolated, disengaged. I mean, my sense is that, you know, that they're probably quite personal reasons. There are probably things happening in his home life, um, things happening at, at home, and I'm sure on some level as well, a broader sense of being, being alienated by a society that, um, you know, does, uh, you know, does consider, to, does consider um, Muslims, and particularly Muslim men, to be somehow less or undesirable. You know, I, I think it's no surprise that... Um, we saw some weeks ago around the debate around Syrian refugees, um, a coalition backbencher tell a journalist that, you know, the kind of sentiment in the, the party room was no more Muslim men. I mean, that... I guess, what do you say to, I guess, the, the at times um, overblown media reporting of, of, for example, Fahad's case and, and other cases surrounding terrorism um, that may require a bit more nuance, say the Daily Telegraph's um, spread um, a few days ago and things of that nature? Yeah, look, I think it's, um, it plays to, I guess, our kind of worst fears around this issue. And look, my concern is that groups like Islamic State, I think, factor in the media responding in this way into their strategies, into their tactics. The kind of, the sort of sick genius of a group like ISIS and the way that they seek to cause havoc in society is that they really rely on our imaginations and our hysteria doing 90% of the work. You know, all they have to do is, you know, somehow convince, you know, a young person to do some, you know, incredibly like foolish and tragic act. And they, they bank on the fact that we aren't going to treat it like an ordinary crime. We're going to try to whip up fear, whip up hysteria. Um, in, in doing so, we sort of end up, um, dividing dividing Muslims from non-Muslims when, in fact, what the media and what society at large should be trying to do in situations like this is understand exactly how this happened, understand how we can make sure it doesn't happen uh, again and, you know, try to make sure that, that the community isn't divided over instances like this because that's exactly what extremists like, like Islamic State I'm and others... And you're listening to The Race Card. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the Race Guard. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting out on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the Race Guard. Now we move on to the topic of right-wing Islamophobic mobilizations in Australia. In the past few weeks, the town of Bendigo has been embroiled between protests against a planned mosque to anti-racism rallies that, that counter-protest. There have been two rallies so far which have affected the town. The United Patriots Front, who hosts the rallies, have a support from the rural townships and from a local councillor. However, their support greatly relies on protesters coming in from Melbourne and nearby towns. Poppy went out to the second rally yesterday and spoke to some residents and why they were, why they came along. And um, are you on any side, if you want to share? 
Uh, yeah, UPF. I'm yeah. against the mosque. And um, is it because of religious reasons? No, it's just the, the, it's not really the Muslims that we're against, it's just the mosque because they are, well look what they've done overseas, it's, you know, they kill people and yeah. So even though they say they're peaceful, we have yet to see that. So you're, you're still afraid, I mean you're afraid that no matter you know, what they're like, they're still going to bring violence and harm here. Um, are you, oh sorry, I already... Inigo and our council never gave us the, um, a right to object to it, they just went ahead and approved it. So really a lot of this is about that as well, that we as residents can't speak for everybody but um, feel sort of a little bit slighted because we weren't asked and it's just going to change our town forever. And you, so you... Did you know about the protest happening? Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, are you on either side at all? Uh, I'm kind of... I just... I don't agree with the racists at all. I think it's a lot of, you know, like... You can't, the only thing permanent is change. You can't stop change, you know, and their hate is creating more hatred. So. Do you think it's a, quite frightening that these right-wing mobilisations, so they're all from, you know, Melbourne yeah, and elsewhere, yeah. that they're coming to your town? Is that quite scary? Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. It's, yeah, it's, it's no, no place for it, I reckon. Because I think um, they, um, you know, like, like the past few months, Bendigo's become such a, like, po- like politicised town yeah, and, yeah. like, none of the residents here ask for that. Yeah, so yeah. do you, like, you know, do you kind of just want them to go away? Yeah, well, it's a waste of taxpayers' money as well. <laughs> it's like getting extra cops in and, you know, like, just, yeah, let go. <laughs> have you seen any violence, um, you know, uh, out, erupt out here? The last, the last protest I did see a little bit of violence, but not too, nothing too serious. No worries. Um, thank you so much for that. So you work here? Are you in the cafe? Yeah. Oh. They were going to build a mosque, but until they burn our flag, that's just right. So, yeah, so, and you think... Um, Fuck the Muslims! Sorry. Fuck do you, the police! Like, do you think having more of them come here, is that a problem? Uh, and they're going... If they keep burning our flag, it's going to be a problem for them. For them, yeah. And why do you hate Muslims? Because they're pedophiles. And they rock people. So you're scared that um, there's violence that's going to come here? Yeah. yeah. This is Australia. This is meant for fucking Aussies. Not These fucking... are Aussies. They're not Aussies. So, yeah. And, uh, they shouldn't be here. They should go back to their own country and go where they belong. What about the people that were born here? Oh, uh, that's fine. Well, that's fine. That's fine. But awesome. if they're coming over from the other country, then that's just going to make it worse because... Oh, my um, God. That horse is taking a shit. Right, so that was just some of the things that went down in Bendigo. Poppy, what do you what do you have to say for that? That was weird. Um, it was quite an interesting experience. That's I don't know to say the least. Um, I got myself to, um, involved in the United Patriots front side. I wanted to see sort of the general scope of the people here, and what I found that they, it was quite polarized. There were plenty of you know people who would like like those kids there. They were very young children who were you know some were in high school, some were just out of high school, just ordinary kids who you know were very like misguided and were willing to say like outrightly say things like kill all the Muslims and when I tried to ask the you know ask them why and rational explanations they were all a bit they had to second guess what they were saying so they often had misguided views so when they referenced the burning of the flag uh, the last protest it was actually the counter rally a um 
a woman from the counter rally had actually decided to burn the flag and there was opposition from both sides. Like, people were very angry about that. Um, you know, it was supposed to be a symbolic gesture to aggravate the United Patriots front, but it actually ended up upsetting a lot of people around the area. But um, what I found a lot more insidious, though, was, um, say, the woman that in the first in the first Fox Pop, she had a rational explanation behind everything and then she actually said later that... Um, you know, she said, I'm a migrant too, but I assimilated here. And she, you know, she implied that, you know, um, you know Muslim people won't assimilate at, at all. And that's, I actually, yeah, I said that to a lot of the, I said that to a lot of the supporters. I said, what about me? I'm a migrant too. How does it make it any different that I'm here in your country um, than to say someone who's, than to say a, Mus- a Muslim person? It doesn't really make a difference because they didn't really have a coherent argument behind it. Right. Sorry, that Mickey's just shaking her head right now in the studio. Of that discussion is disgusting for an Aboriginal person to sit there and listen to white Australians talk about other cultures assimilating into theirs to make them feel more comfortable. I find it it's just outrageous and hypocrite. It's disgusting. Definitely, and uh, what I found even more frightening about that is. Um, I interviewed, you know, uh, I didn't get a soundbite. She didn't want to go on air, but there was an Indigenous woman who I said who had brought down her family, her nieces and nephews, and she said, I'm against the, you know, I'm against the mosque. And I asked her, I asked her why, and then she said she was actually, you know, against the lefties and the anti-race, the anti-racism march. And she said they don't speak on behalf of, you know, of the First Nations people. But I said, you know that there are Indigenous groups in there. And that there are indigenous people who are on the opposing side, who are for the who are for the mosque. So, what do you think about that? And she was very, um, very passionate about the fact that she hated that there was a, as she put it, a white person in inverted commas holding the indigenous flag up, um, up. So, what what do you think of that? I mean, she's certainly um, entitled to her opinion, but I think you know, white supremacy is not exclusive to white people. And I'm not, you know, and I'm not attacking her in any kind of way. I just think that we we all experience it to some degree, and our level of consciousness and how that impacts us, and how that we view other people from other cultures, and when visiting this land, I think it's insidious to have this view towards, um, you know, other people of colour, and it's certainly not assisting us and our movements to um, further oppress other peoples of colour. I mean, I I know that you know. Aboriginal people don't possess enough power to do so, but I know that white people will use an Aboriginal person's mm. voice right. to go around and say whatever they want, um, that, that Muslims and mosques are not welcome. And it certainly doesn't reflect, you know, the, 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 the um, radical Aboriginal community's views in Melbourne. Yeah, you burnt a flag. Yeah, and, and yeah, we burnt, you know, because I, it, the whole notion of the, them reclaiming Australia, every argument that they have... Is is just there's no foundations for it. It's there, there's so much hypocrisy uh, right through all of their arguments. There is no basis for why they don't even want Muslims here. It's xenophobia, xenophobia, and it's they can be torn apart by any Aboriginal person in that conversation. Um, I you know being bang smack in the middle of both protests. Um, if kind of I felt like I was taking photographs there, and it felt like it was a music festival. These children, you know, these young kids were treating it as a spectacle, and the, the way that you know they had their families there, they, there were heaps of yeah, heaps of families, and like on the UPF side, there were heaps of supporters from you know people from indigenous backgrounds. Mm-hmm. There were um, some a- Africans there, some you know Asians there. Like they're, they're, it's a very polarized group, and um, what I found interesting is both sides actually 
actually use the premise of racist uh, you know, racists aren't welcome if you're a racist, leave. leave. So they both, like, used that as their sort of, um, I guess, like, forefront of, of the protest. But really what they were saying is, you know, if we, like, we're all for multiculturalism, just not Islam. But in a sense, that's, that's moot. That's still racism. Mm. Yeah, so all of their arguments, are, I don't find that argument valid. It doesn't make sense. We've right. had discussions about how, I guess, Islam can become racialized and how people's fantasy of Islam can I guess be very be of again black and brown people um r- ruining Australian values and what have you but Amina yeah I think people need to think of racism not just about race I mean it's beyond that it's to do with is what is coded um, with racialization, and part of that is Islamophobia. You know, it's as, as Ahmed mentioned when we talk about black or brown people. You know, you can't just be like, "Oh, I'm not racist. I'm just against Muslims." Well, guess who? All most of those Muslims are. Most of those Muslims are probably brown and black people. Mm. It's just you know, it's we have come to a point in time where it's more. How do we say? It's more looked down upon to say I hate brown and black people. But it's definitely more acceptable to say I'm anti-Muslim. And because it is still relatively all right, people will use that, but they will hark on it. But yeah, um, moving on, we're going to head on to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. What Haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked. Um, or, like, persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. Alright, so... No, five seconds. Five seconds, go for it. Alright, so... What does the term white privilege mean to you? What does what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing, man. Not for me. Not for you? No, man. We're all the same. Blood is red. We're all the same. All brothers. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so... Is this like racism kind of stuff? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Just off your head. Well, I guess. Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we're talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow, that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard-hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media... Uh, even things like the police and the military dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that 
never gets tested by the people around them. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the Race Guard. Remember, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the Race Guard. And that was Loki with My Soul. Moving on to the feature, we're looking at multiraciality and what it means to be mixed race. And to join us in our discussion, we've got Ariel on the line, who's a Eurasian with a Malaysian and Chinese Native American mother and an English-Irish dad. Ariel, you're on the line? Hi. Hey, Ariel. So yeah, so just as we were talking about off-air, um, what does it mean to be mixed race and what does it mean to be racialized in a, you know, be mixed race and racialized in a world that heavily racializes people? Um, well, it's really difficult to sort of explain that because I've lived both in Singapore and Asia in general and also in Australia and my experience in, you know, both continents has been so radically different. And... Um, so, I mean, my experience in Singapore as a fair-skinned Eurasian with a U.S. passport, you know, that's one of immense privilege. And, um, you know, race in Singapore is so steeped in white supremacy and colonialism and, you know, just lateral violence of pock-and-pock racism dependent on your skin color. And, you know, returning to Australia after all those years, it's just been a really interesting experience because, you know, over here I'm not red as Eurasian. I don't have that same privilege at all. I'm just seen as Asian. Um, you know, even close white friends who know about my background, they still think of me and introduce me to other people as Asian. And, you know, there's so, so that, you know, starting to think about the pa- power dynamics that played out between your parents and, you know, finding out that, oh, actually, your white dad is a massive creep, you know. And, you know, when I first saw my dad for the first time in many years, you know, he's just saying, like, you know, why is your nose so Asian? Or I wish I had children with different women from around the world to see what they would look like. And it's just it's just really weird and bizarre. And, you know, and as I said, that whole thing about not all mixed-race people, you know, have a white parent either. You know, there's so many different experiences with that, too. Yeah, definitely. I think when you were talking about um, how mixed-race people look, that really struck with me, particularly as someone who isn't actually, um, who doesn't have a, a white parent, uh, so to speak. Yeah. My um, my father is from Sri Lanka, my mother is from the Philippines, and I get racialized very strangely. <laughs> um, I think when I was a child, when I used to live in Saudi Arabia, a lot of people just thought I was Indian. And uh, mm. that messed up my sense of, you know, how I look like and my sense of you know, how I identify myself. And as I got older, you know, I blossomed into, you know, a little tween. I used to YouTube videos, you know, how to do makeup for Indian skin. And as, you know, it didn't obviously suit me. And I got a little bit older. People used to think I was Malaysian. And what was also interesting is this hierarchy of desirability, right? So as I was, you know, I turned into my 20s. And when people found me desirable, people thought I was South American. And when they didn't like me, I remember dating a guy. He was so adamant. Um, I should tell his friends that I'm South American. But when he was angry at me, he would call me Indian, which is strange because, I mean, in the end, I was neither one. But I think even when we talk about, I guess, racialization, there's definitely a hierarchy of desirability. Uh, Could you speak to some of that? Um, So, I mean, in the context of Singapore, because I'm just going to speak to that because that's what I know. You know, I mean, the British left, Singapore, you know, as a former colony, they left 50 years ago. and But Singapore still follows the racial hierarchy that they set up 
back then, you know, where they have, you know, the majority Chinese population is at the top. And then, you know, you have, you know, other local races like Malay and Indian people sort of below that. And because of weird white supremacy stuff, you have white people and, you know, fair-skinned Eurasian people above Chinese people. And, you know, it's it's just... It's just weird because, you know, there's this um, uh, Indian-Singaporean scholar, uh, Sangeeta Tanapal. You know, she's talked about how in Singapore, Chinese-Singaporeans experience Chinese privilege, which, which functions very similarly, similarly to white privilege in Western countries. And, you know, with that, because of my particular background, you know, I have fair skin. That's also different to what a Eurasian person with a South Asian parent and a white parent would experience. Because they would still experience racism from, you know, from society in general there because of their skin color. And, you know, when growing up in Singapore, you know, you, you, the way the media f looks is very similar to the U.S. as well, where you have Eurasians sort of overrepresented. Over so, you know, growing up, you know, MTV Asia, their VJs, most of them were Eurasian. You were seen as beautiful and cool and Western. And that was a character implication that monoracial and Asian cultures were uncool and less beautiful. And, you know, I mean, personally, for me, I see that something that I have to actively combat against and speak up against because, you know, I, I have all this privilege and I have to try and use it for, for good. I don't know. And, you know, but at the same time in Australia, I don't experience that. So it, it's been a very different Sort of experience so far. Absolutely, and also when you talk about um, the when you talk about being half white. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to invoke uh, percentage talk, but if you yeah. talk about having yeah. you know a white parent and stuff, what I'm thinking about is my mother. Actually, my mother is mestiza, and for listeners who are not aware of mestizos in the Philippines, what happened was um, when the colonizers came to the land from Spain, and the um, they severely they brutalized a lot of um, the native. Uh, people, the native women, and so my mother just happens to be um, from that lineage, unfortunately. But what also happened is that they created a caste system of sorts. So they had, you know, the monoracial Spanish uh, at the top, and then you had, you know, the what they called a half caste at the time, or the mestizos, and then yeah. you had, you know, a whole range of um, people in the Philippines and indigenous peoples at the at the very bottom. And I'm thinking about this legacy um, as a continuation of lateral violence. You know, when we talk about yeah. light skin privilege, when we talk about, you know, all of those kind of talk. Um, in the end, to me, I feel like as a person of color, as someone who has, you know, lived with, with ancestry that came from that lineage, it, it harks back as uh, lateral violence. And certainly I can see that in my own home. You know, my mom and my dad, sure, they're people of color, but, you know, they harbor some racist ideas about each other. Um, my mom doesn't like the idea that I dress to South Asian sometimes. My dad is very ad adamant that my brothers shouldn't, you know, date a Japanese person. So even though they have all these, you know, they like to talk about how progressive they are because they married each other. They still have these racist ideals, which again comes to show that just because you're in a, you know, interracial relationship doesn't actually mean you challenge any of your racism. Yeah, Do you want definitely. to speak to that? I mean, like, I mean, just with regards to my parents' relationship, you know, as I've grown older and I'm start starting to think about it now, you know, I've realized that in the past, you know, I did indulge in that idea of respectability politics. I mean, that was before I even knew what it was, you know, because my parents met while they were studying for their master's degrees in the UK. And, you know, in my 
in what I thought at the time, you know, he obviously fell in love with her for beauty and brains, and that was maybe somehow better than the way some other mixed race couples met. You know, traditionally, especially that connotation of you know war and conquest in you know in Asia and other parts of the world. You know, that legacy of that, and you know, of course, what I thought was completely wrong because. There is no real sort of better or worse way to fall in love, and the actual racial power dynamics in their relationship was probably no different than other mixed race couples, despite how they met or you know the class and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things because there's still that you know colonial mindset that sort of seeps into everything, and you can't really get away from that. Right. Thank you so much for talking to us, Ariel. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. That's all right. I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about when we talk about mystery <laughs> stuff. I think we just touched like the bare minimum at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if, if listeners weren't aware, I think. A few days ago, Donald Trump banned um, mixed-race contestants from joining the Miss Universe enterprise, and he was citing uh, basically blood politics stuff, and which is what inspired myself and Ariel to have a little conversation on this. But definitely, we can t- take this to Twitter, everybody. You can always tweet <laughs> us at the race card. And that's it for this show. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget a podcast if you just tuned in and you want to hear the rest of this. You can follow us on Twitter um, at the race card. Uh, and uh, if you're so inclined, you can also follow me at Ahmed Yusuf10, the number 10, and Poppy Pro at Twitter. And I'm pretty sure Mariki has a Twitter account too. Do, but I don't know the hang on, I'll just get it out. We've got it on our, uh, we've retweeted you and tagged you on a few of um, our tweets. So. I think it's Mariki KO. Yeah, it's Mariki KO, at Mariki KO. And I still don't have Twitter. But get on the race card, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.